Um, well, just so you know, Lori, um, the way that we do the podcast is uh, that it's an edited conversation. So um, as we go through, if you misstate something or you want to, you just want to say something over again um, to be more clear or whatever, just say that as we're going along. Say something like, "Oh, I'm going to say that over again," and then just start over. And our uh, oh. friend and producer Jemmy Joe will go through and clean it up and make sure you sound very smart. Okay, good. <laughs> I wish you guys would do this in all my meetings. He sounds so much more. The Proper, but also. Welcome to the Olympia Standard. I'm Danny Madrone. I'm Emmett O'Connell. This podcast is a calm, reasoned conversation about local issues in Olympia, Washington. Calm and reasoned. Yeah. Calm. Well, welcome to the Olympia Standard. After each legislative session, we like to sit down with a member of our local delegation and learn about what Olympia brought to state government and the impact state government will have on Olympia. This year was a short session for the legislature, which is only 60 days long. And now it appears that we're gearing up towards a special session to work on the COVID-19 crisis. In between these, we're happy to have Representative Lori Dolan on the show with us. So, Lori, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and the kind of perspective that you bring to the legislature? Sure. Well, thanks, Danny and Emmett. I appreciate you uh, hosting me today. And I'll just give a little brief um, overview because I think probably most people listening to this know, know a lot more about me than I'm about to tell you. So, um, I came to Olympia in 2005. Uh, actually spent most of my life in Spokane, Washington, except for going to the University of Washington for three years, returning back to Spokane to start teaching first grade way back in 1973. And I started teaching in a school with 95% free lunch students, so deep, deep poverty, um, mainly Caucasian and Native American kids in that particular school. Um, and I had grown up in Spokane where we had heat in our house and food on our table, didn't have money for vacations, but certainly had all of our basic needs um, met. And now I was teaching little kids who had none of those basic needs met. They didn't have enough food at home. School was where they got food back in 1973. I'd bring cereal boxes and feed them some dry cereal in the morning to get them started. So I really learned at the ripe old age of 21 what deep poverty looks like. And that is the great um, inequity between our schools and our kids. And we'll talk more about that later when we talk about McCleary. Um, after uh, teaching both first grade and special ed, I went into administration and spent the last 20 years of my career supervising school principals and programs such as special ed and Title I, vocational education, those kinds of programs. I uh, did that for the last 20 years, then I retired in 2004, and in 2005, Governor Chris Gregoire hired me to move to Olympia and become her director of policy which was delightful, a delightful job for me. I had spent years doing K-12, and it was very fun at that point in my life to get the opportunity to learn all about um, Washington State and state policy, state budget, 
all the aspects of the um, content that Washington State needs to provide for our citizens. So for four years, I got to work with really smart policy advisors that I got to hire, and then I got to learn content from each of them, and I was the manager person. I um, Managing people is probably my main skill set that brought me to Chris Gregoire and did that job. So since 2005, Olympia has been my home, and um, I did that for four years, and then I ended up with a second stem cell transplant. I actually have this, um, it's a fatal blood cancer, but I've had it for a lot of years, and here I am healthy and well. Uh, but I've had two stem cell transplants and a second one happened in the end of 2008. And so I actually thought, you know, if I'm toast, and I'm going to be out of here really quick. I need to go play with my husband. So we went and traveled the world and had a great time for nine years. And then when Chris Rakedahl left his job back in 2016 to run for the office of the superintendent of public instruction, some dear friends said, we think you ought to run for that job. And what I realized is, after nine years of playing, I was really missing work and using my skill set and thought, you know, this is like the perfect job for the frosting on the cake of my life. So I ran in 2016, won, and have been in this job for four years now. And it, all that's true. It's the greatest job to basically end my working career with. Um, we have such smart people in the 22nd legislative district, such smart constituents bring you bills often all ready to go because they've spent their life <laughs> in state government and we're um, very lucky to live in Olympia and Lacey and Tumwater. Great. Thank you, Lori. Mm -hmm. So like you said, you bring a, um, a broad perspective around education. We've heard from our own local school board directors and administrators that the so-called McClear solution was incomplete and it especially impacted funding for our local schools. Was any progress made to make education more equitable during the last session? So I, you probably have also heard that I work really closely with our local, um, not only our teachers, but our administrators and our school boards. And the, the main reason I actually ran in terms of policy for this office back in 2016 is if you go back and look at the newspapers from 2016, there were um, a lot of front page articles about the fact that teachers' salary schedules were creating the inequities between districts which is absolutely erroneous. And I remember sitting in my living room reading those headlines thinking, my God, I need to get there and try to help with this. So with McCleary, McCleary was all about more of basic education being paid from the state level. So the real truth about that is who pays state taxes? Well, you and I pay state taxes. Who pays local taxes? You and I pay local taxes. So the same people pay taxes, whether the state puts in the money or local districts put in the money. But we really needed to change the um, formula so that the state was putting in more of the money um, so that we would be funding the common schools, our K-12 education system. So the way we did that, unfortunately, was through property taxes. That was not what the Democratic caucus wished, but that was what the Republican um, Senate caucus wanted, and they got their way in the end, um, where we went up almost into having to uh, stop the state because we were at the very tail end of being able to negotiate. It was like June 30th. So we went with the property taxes, which was the wrong funding source, but it did change that our taxes were paid more from the state level. 
But we broke two really important things about school funding in doing that. We kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. We broke the fact that local school boards who govern what happens in school districts, who have been elected in Washington state since 1849, which is 40 years before we became a state. That's how long ago we started um, electing local school board directors. They're the ones who need to also put in bells and whistles into the K-12 education program. Most citizens, most parents, when they walk into their kid's classroom, expect to see a lot more than just basic education going on. They want music programs. They want band. They want the arts. They want other experiences for their children. And local school districts, directed by their school board members, make the decisions on how to, how to buy those extras that their community expects. So when we did McCleary, we locked down local levies so tight that we took away their checkbook. So no longer did school boards have the opportunity to put in their own community wish list for their kids. And so one of the things we had to fix, and we fixed it two sessions ago in 2019, is we loosened up how much school levies could, um, could cost. Because citizens vote on those anyway. Nobody's mandating that citizens pay a certain amount of money for a local levy. But they were, um, at that point in time, they needed the revenue coming in from their local levy to pay those bells and whistles. So that's one of the things that was broken that we fixed two years ago. The other thing that we still haven't fixed, and I'm actually working on it over the interim with, um, a lot of educators, is we took away the teacher salary schedule. Because again, back in 2016, people thought that salary schedule was creating inequities. I think now they realize it has nothing to do with the salary schedule. It has to do with poverty. It has to do with the fact that some rural, rural little towns in Washington state have no property base. They have no um, family wage jobs. It's a lot of farmland. And they can't afford to, to have public education, and they certainly need to pay teachers um, a good salary. So we need to get a salary schedule back, and that's one of the things that um, I'm hoping to fix for next session. Timing's bad <laughs> with the budget being blown apart like it's being blown apart right now, but um, we need to pay more money for those top tier teachers to actually get the salaries that they deserve after teaching for 25 to 30 years. So I'm working on that this summer. And I think if we can get that in place, suddenly school funding will once again be more sustainable than it's been since McCleary was um, passed. Great. Thank you, Lori. I, I'm going to assume that it's going to be a difficult time to work on anything not related to the impacts of COVID-19, but it's important to keep that work moving along. Absolutely. Um, and in the last session, uh, you sponsored a couple of bills that focus on easing the transition of the formerly incarcerated back into society. There was HB 2292, which addressed voting rights for those who have been convicted of a felony and served their time, and HB 2220, which would have helped formerly incarcerated parents volunteer at their kids' schools. Uh, and I want to personally thank you for sponsoring that one, because I do have a friend who is formerly incarcerated and has a special needs child. So that one was very, very important to her. Um, unfortunately, neither of them made it through to become law. 
Can you tell us about the importance of these bills and will you continue to advance bills like these in the legislature? So I, I'm going to go back to 1973 when I was teaching first grade in the really low socioeconomic school. Several of the parents of my students were former, had former felony convictions. And at 21 years old, it never even occurred to me that they should not be sitting in my classroom volunteering, um, bringing their kids cupcakes on their birthday and fully involved in their kids' education because the best way for public education to work is if parents are integrally involved in their kids' education. That's a hard word to say. And kids see their parents regularly in their classrooms and teachers work closely with parents. That's how the situation works. I mean, that's how the it works the best when everyone is dedicated to that little person's education. So this bill is really important to me. And along the way, about four years ago, when I first started in this job, I met the folks from Civil Survival, which meet regularly, I think monthly out of the Evergreen College. And I went and listened to their stories about um, trying to get into their kids' classrooms to volunteer and being told that they could not do so. And I found that horrifying. So that's where the parent volunteer bill genesis of where it came from. Um, along the way, I was also working with a person named Tara Simmons, which you probably know Tara. She was a former felon, studied to be an attorney, passed the bar, and then the Bar Association told her she couldn't be an attorney because of the former felony conviction. She ended up taking that to the Washington State Supreme Court, who listened to her story and looked at her and said, we can't think of anybody better to be an attorney than you. So Tara helped me with that bill a lot. We were, it was, it was devastating, frankly, that that bill didn't get through. I do not understand why our society is so afraid of having people who have made a mistake early on, served their time, done all sorts of activities to show that they're ready to be fledged citizens again. And then we are, as a society, tend not to give them a second chance. Because until we can give them a second chance, they're never going to be the full-fledged citizens, either voting rights or volunteering in their kids' classrooms. So these bills are really important to me personally. Um, it's very frustrating that they're so hard to get through. <laughs> We're going to keep trying, absolutely. And Tara Simmons is actually right now running for the Washington State Legislature, and I'm hoping she's going to. Be that's in the why. House with that's me. why her name's familiar. So, okay. <laughs> so I, I'm really excited that we could get her there because she's brilliant. Um, she speaks from her own personal experience, and she might change the hearts of some people who right now think that former felons shouldn't have a second chance. In the last election, the voters approved I-976, also known as the Car Taps Initiative. There has been a battle in the judicial system to determine the constitutionality of this initiative, which is yet to be resolved. If it is upheld by the court, state government will lose billions of dollars of revenue for our transportation systems, as will local governments. Was this issue addressed at all in the last session? So we spent a great deal of time addressing that issue. Um, obviously, we don't know the outcome yet. The outcome will be devastating if it's found that, that, that the initiative will be upheld. At the same time, I have to tell you that this COVID-19 situation is even worse <laughs> than yeah. the, that initiative. And so it's like right now we're suffering from this double whammy in terms of transportation projects. So all work has stopped pretty much on most transportation projects Part of it first for the funding 
um, situation, that unknown, but now because of COVID-19. So we have two big things we need to work our way through with transportation. Um, I think the outcome of that is going to depend on um, the revenue forecast. How much money do we get into the state coffers when it starts coming back? The, the final decision of the court. So that there's a lot of unknowns. If we have to actually not follow through with any of these projects, our roads are not going to be as safe for any of us. And that would be a shame. So I, there's just no way to sugarcoat that. It's going to be pretty devastating to transportation in Washington state. So before we start digging into that COVID-19 response, um, you know, uh, obviously a lot of things happen in, during a session and we can't cover them all. When we had Beth on last, we talked mostly about housing and climate change. Now we're talking about education and transportation. Um, but is there, is there anything else that happened in the last session that you want to make sure our listeners know about that will impact their lives? So I'll, I'll tell you two good things that um, I was really involved in. One is um, House Bill, let's see if I can get the number, 1521, which has to do with government contracting. And back in 2008, and this has to do with our state employees and the Washington Federation of State Employees. Um, back in 2008, when we were in the other economic crisis, which may have been less than this one's going to be, what happened is we balanced our budget on the backs of our state employees. Because when you look at any big budget, the main, the main cost of the budget is people. Paying people is what costs the most money. So the only way we could balance the budget, and states have to balance the budget, unlike the federal government that can keep printing money. Um, back in 2008, we balanced the budget by laying off our state employers, firing our state employees, or furloughing our state employees, or asking them to work without pay. The ones that were mission critical, they had to keep working, but we had no money to pay them for their work. So really the state employees is what balanced our budget in 2008. And then what happened is the state, oftentimes instead of hiring back state employees as the budget money came back, they would outsource the jobs. That has been a, a tremendous um, obstacle for state employees since 2008. It's been an emotional obstacle for them. So we were able to finally pass after I worked on it for four years myself, this government contracting bill that basically I'm so happy it's in place now because if we once again have to lay off state employees with this new bill, when we get money back, we will hire state employees back. We won't be outsourcing that work. We're best to keep outsourcing for emergency situations where suddenly a roof caves in during a terrible rainstorm and we don't have enough state employees to fix a roof. We contract that work out with our trusted contracted union members. Um, and also there's certain big jobs, transportation jobs. We don't have state employees to do those. Those are contracted out. So great big jobs and, uh, and emergency jobs are great for outsourcing, contracting out. But all those other jobs should belong to our state employees. They know how to do them the best, and that's where we get the most bang for our money. So I'm happy about government contracting. The other bill that I've been working on for a couple of years is a school safety bill, and it sets up a school safety center in each of our nine educational service districts. And we were able to get the second, um, it's designed for three employees in each educational service district. One that works on threat assessment, teaches 
school districts and educators how to be more tuned in if a certain kid seems to be falling apart. And what we do is instead of expelling the student and making usually a him go away, what we do is we wrap services around that kid. So hopefully we can help him get his life more stabilized. When you look at mass shootings around the United States, both in the workplace and in the school place, oftentimes it's because we've expelled or fired an employee. They go home, they're angry, they find a gun, they oftentimes kill the people in their house, and then they go back to their workplace or their school, and they kill as many people as they can. And so the threat assessment process wraps services around them instead of saying, you're not good enough, you need to leave. The other job that we just got in this year's budget, and I'm hoping it'll stay, is we got a mental health <clears throat> slash suicide prevention person. We lose more kids in Washington state to suicide prevention every year than mass shootings over, you know, like a 10 year period. Mm. Unfortunately, suicides um, are way more prevalent than we want them to be. And hopefully by adding these positions in each educational service district, again, they can do the outreach training to all the school districts. So now the the smallest school districts are going to get this training, not just the big school districts who have been have been able to afford to bring in their own experts for many years now. It'll be in every district across the state. So those are probably the two things I'm happiest about with the session personally. Thank you, Lori. That's that's really good work. So it became apparent before Sine Die on March 12th, the last day of the 2020 session, that the uh, pandemic was coming our way. The legislature was able to take some action before breaking with engrossed House Bill 2965. What came out of this bill to initiate the statewide response? So one of the main things we needed to do before we left was unlock some of the um, Budget Stabilization Act money, the BSA money. And we unlocked $200 million before we left town. And that was you're right, it was kind of the very last minute when all this was becoming apparent. And that money was really to go to our state agencies that are like our first responder agencies, employment security, um, the hospitals, <laughs> the places that right now are responding to people in need of their help. And so that $200 million was to do that first response. As we left town, we had no idea it was going to get as big as it actually has gotten since then. So obviously $200 million is almost spent. Right now, we're getting some of the CARES money in, although it's not coming as fast as we had all hoped. So we're going to be, we we talk regularly. Um, each of our committee chairs is overseeing their part of the CARES money to see how we're going to best utilize the money coming in from the federal government, put pressure on our delegation to get more money from the federal government, because we are way far away from having enough money to meet people's needs out there. So it's, it continues to evolve. The dilemma is we're losing maybe, I want to guess, $250 million a week right now because in Washington State with our crazy regressive tax system, we're really dependent on B&O tax and on sales tax. And right now when everybody's sheltering in place, quote unquote, there's not the business money coming in and people aren't out buying a lot of things other than probably online. So we, we really, as a state, every day we're um, getting deeper and deeper into this hole that's being dug. And chances are we're going to have to come back probably the end of June, because in June we'll get an economic forecast. 
and then we'll know more what we're dealing with. Um, we'll come back in June after the economic forecasts and probably end up writing supplemental budget based on what our revenue is, how much money we got from the feds, how much money is starting to come in through B&O tax again. So there's a lot more cuts on the way to make this balance. We're going to have to fill in any place from three to six billion dollars of a hole that we're digging right now. And I know for myself personally, like of all of my my personal budget line items, the one I'm spending way more on is groceries, and those are not taxed uh, by the state. Uh, so uh, that, that that doesn't help out with revenue at all, does it? It does. It does not. And, and the <laughs> other problem with the state budget is. So much of the state budget we really can't touch. For example, K-12 education, that's the paramount duty of the state. That's constitutionally protected. So anything in what's called that prototypical model, we can't cut. Yeah. So when you, when you look at the things you can cut, it's things that hurt the most vulnerable citizens a lot. It's, it's mental health things. It's um, health care issues. Unemployment insurance right now, we're running through money really fast on that. So it's going to be painful. This is going to be a really um, sad, a lot of sad hard work over the next months to, to end up with a balanced state budget once the damage of COVID-19 is done. Well, and it's already been a bit painful. Uh, Governor, Governor Inslee vetoed several items in the budget from the last session in anticipation of some of these impacts. And for example, um, a bill supporting community solar projects, which our local Olympia Community Solar Group worked very hard to get past, uh, was struck. Uh, what else did we lose through these vetoes? Oh, we lost I mean, the, the biggest things he vetoed because he was actually looking, obviously, for big money because the more money he could veto at that point in time, the less jobs we're going to have to take away at the next rung of this thing. So he vetoed paraeducator training. Um, we had for two days a year for our paraeducators. We were going to add the other days, and he vetoed that, and that got $14.3 million. Um, he vetoed guidance counselors. We had passed a bill that would put a one more guidance counselor in all of our schools, basically. He vetoed that. That was $32 million. Um, he vetoed $50 million, which would have been a transfer of money from the state general fund to the climate resiliency account. So, you know, climate change, folks, that's a heartbreaker for them. He, it's a heartbreaker for Inslee. Yeah, it's a heartbreaker for Inslee, for sure. He, he vetoed uh, this transportation backfill money that would have um, helped make up for what the initiative might end up taking away. And that was $30 million. So those are the four biggest things he vetoed. But he also vetoed um, probably hundreds of other smaller things. The initial response bill, the EHB 2965, passed out of the legislature without any opposition. Since then, we've seen some rising opposition from the Republican side of the aisle questioning the governor's response to the crisis and introducing an alternative plan to reopening the economy. A big, a big part of that plan, which is absolutely no surprise, was a lot of tax cuts. How do you feel about the partisan tenor of the last week or so, including the protests just over a week ago at the Capitol? So it's um, probably to be expected. What we're asking people to do in terms of staying ho home, social distancing, not going to work, not making money in several cases, maybe even losing their businesses, that those are pretty high stakes that people are putting into this thing personally. 
I do think that most of the citizens in Washington appreciate the governor caring more about saving our lives than getting people too quickly back into a, a situation that's not safe and we're going to lose more Washingtonians. So I do think the most people in Washington state are very supportive of our governor and the, the decisions he's made. The The amount of people that are in protests um, are relatively small. I was watching the one in Spokane. It got a lot of media attention, but there were probably less than 50 people out in front of City Hall in Spokane that were actually doing the protesting. One of the iconic pictures I've seen in the past few weeks is a picture of a first responder doctor, obviously in his mask and kind of in his scrubs, standing with his arms folded, blocking a street that's going into a hospital, like maybe where ambulances come in. And there was one of the protesters who had one of those kind of obnoxious masks on that makes him look really formidable. And I'm watching the two of them, they're like facing off with each other. And I'm thinking, I know who the real hero is in that picture. It's the guy who every day goes and maybe gives up his own life to save people's lives. So I'm not sure that um, the protesters are getting as much traction as they had hoped. I think they represent a very, very small portion of the Republican Party. I do think that we need to think about how we can get the economy going safely as soon as we can, because not having money, losing the business you spent 10 years building, those are all pretty substantial um, problems for families as well. Uh, There was a dad on the news saying, my kids asked me what's for dinner, and I don't know how to answer that because I don't have anything for dinner. So those are all real problems, but I think we need to be very cautious and safe as we try to reopen what we all hope to get reopened soon. I mean, not having school has been traumatic for me being an educator and trying to help teachers figure out how to do online education and make sure we have the right professional development in place. And how do you bring kids back with social distancing? I mean, I taught first graders and there's no way I can think of that first graders are actually going to do social distancing very well. They touch each other a lot. (laughs) They touch their teacher a lot. That's what they do. Yeah, they're pretty terrible at it. No, I think you're right. I think there was a, um, I mean, some of this polling was conducted before the protests a couple of weeks ago, but at least when you look at the partisan split on approval of government action versus disapproval, there's less approval on the Republican side, but it's still above 50%. Right. Yes. It, it's really easy. It's really easy watching um, the news. I mean, news tends to be things that are done out of the norm. So those things get more time than maybe they warrant. And and it's easy to start thinking it's a bigger issue than it really is. And do you think in the the upcoming special session, um, there's going to be a lot of... um people uh, working on trying to curtail the government's, the the governor's emergency powers that he has been using to deal with the pandemic? I I think there might be some. The bottom line is we have a healthy majority in the House of um, Representatives and we control the agenda. So well, there you go. uh, What (laughs) we have to do is we might have to spend hours listening to other viewpoints um, but ultimately, when we're going to vote, we already know that we're going to get we're going to win that vote. So the fact right. that we have a 57, I think, majority out of 98 people 
we know before we put anything up for a vote that we're going to actually um, have enough votes to pass that. So, I mean, sexual health education is a great example. We, we listen to, I, I'm on the K-12 education committee. We spent, I think, two and a half, if not three hours listening to testimony against sexual health education in our committee, and then another six hours on the floor of the House of Representatives. And um, it, it's not worth doing a tit for tat where if they make one speech, we make a speech to counteract their speech because it would take us 18 hours instead of six if we did that. It's better to let them say what they need to say, the people who are against sexual health education. They can videotape it. It's on TVW. They can use it for their campaign campaign information. They can do all that. And then we can just say that what we need to say once and vote on it and it passes. But it's painful, Thank you for saying that. <laughs> painful listening to all the testimony. And I can't tell you how many times each one of us wants to stand up and say, wait a minute, that is not accurate. And this is what's accurate. But that really <laughs> adds so much more time that you lose maybe for the really great bills that you want to get passed. Thank, thank you for saying that because, you know, I, I watch a lot of that in politics, the tit for tat at, you know, every level and in the community. And it's like, you know, you don't have to respond to every little thing that's thrown out there. Like we really don't have to. It can be put out there and and, th and then it can be done. <laughs> that's exactly right. And I can guarantee that some of the people sitting on the other side of the aisle also are sick of listening to it. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, the bottom line is we are in the um, enviable place of controlling the agenda. If you're not in power, if your party's not in power and you can't control the agenda, the only thing you really have is your own voice and your own thoughts. And in the process, we actually need to respect that that's the only thing they have because we're going to ultimately control the agenda and pass the bills that are important to us. So you referenced the, uh, the closure of schools just now and just how difficult that's been for um, students and parents. But uh, school districts have been quickly moving towards online education. And I know Dan, both Danny and I both have our own personal experiences, experiences with this. And for me, it's, been a, uh, um, it's definitely been a struggle making sure that everybody in the house has a place to work has time to focus, has that and the help they need. Well, and also, um, you know, the the all the different teachers my daughter has in her middle school are using different tools. And she just got used to middle school because she's in sixth grade. And now everything's different. And that's been a bit of a struggle for her. Uh, and and it, it's been interesting watching uh, the evolution of this. Um, and I think most recently what I learned uh, from the school district is that uh, they, they won't be failing kids who are unable to do the work uh, for whatever reason, but other kids could get like a grade A through D. Um, and so it's interesting to watch how the school district is responding to this, you know, unprecedented circumstance and trying to provide education to kids who can access it, but not everybody can. So, and there have been a lot of challenges with ensuring that all students have equitable access to on, to the online system. So, the superintendent of public instruction, who you talked about, have you replaced him in the legislature, has called on internet access to be governed as utility, the same way that electricity or garbage is utility. But beyond education, the internet has become crucial for those who are working from home and keeping people updated through the pandemic. Do you think that the internet will be governed as a utility in Washington's future? I, I certainly hope so. And we have actually been working uh, towards that. 
the past few years where we've been giving public utilities an opportunity to um, put broadband Wi-Fi in. What's becoming clear, and this crisis made it much more clear much faster, <laughs> uh, is that we internet Wi-Fi connectivity is right up there with the Pony Express and USPS, right? Getting your yeah. mail. It's To me, it's just as urgent as any of those other connectivity things we did early on in our country's history. I think in within education, the, the hardest part about this right now is it's, it's really uneven. So if your kids have um, lucky enough to have a teacher that's very savvy in terms of technology, they're probably getting some great education right now. My, my daughter-in-law is a fourth, fifth grade teacher in Auburn School District, and she uses Google. I forget what the last form of that Google is. It's like Zoom, um, the Google. Google Classroom. Yeah, Google Classroom. <laughs> Should be able to remember <laughs> that one. Um, she uses that, and she does gr large group instruction, and then she meets hourly with four kids at a time to check in with them to see if they have any questions and how they're doing. And she said it's been interesting because what you she had not expected is now instead of teaching just the kid, she's teaching oftentimes the whole family. And oh, wow. she had one young man in her um, one of her groups of four who was saying they had been in a grocery store the other day and there was a Chinese family there and people were making rude comments to the Chinese family. And my daughter-in-law is thinking, okay, this is the teachable moment. And she's talking about how, you know, this is, this is nothing that has to do with ethnicity. This is something we're all dealing with. And that was really unkind and not accurate. And people shouldn't be doing things like that. And as she's saying this to these four kids, she knows a family's probably listening behind that. And she's hoping that his parents weren't actually some of the people <laughs> saying rude things to that family. But even if they were, it's the teachable moment for them as well, right? Right. So I think um, even teachers who are savvy at technology and comfortable going into this online instruction, I think they're running in, into some unique thoughts that they had not realized before. And I also think there's a certain segment of teachers out there who kept thinking, I'm going to retire before I have to deal with technology. And suddenly they're like deeply enmeshed in it. And I'm guessing at the end of this year, we're going to have a... Um, a certain segment of our teachers who are ready to retire. And this is the piece that's going to say, I'm out of here. This is not what I signed up for. And then we have a whole nother group of teachers who um, are wanting to learn, but have never, have never had the reason to do it before. And for those teachers, the educational service districts, those nine ESDs, they have a whole professional development online learning piece going on. They've hired this expert guy who's great at um, teaching how to do online teaching. So he's working statewide with those teachers who are really ready to learn now. This is their teachable moment. So all that professional development's going on. At the same time, Chris Rakedahl sitting over at OSPI trying to buy connectivity for as many kids' homes as he can get it into using some of that CARES Act money. And, um, mm. But if it was a public utility instead of a privately owned company we were dealing with, that would make a lot more sense. Because when you think about it, not only for K-12 education, for health care, a lot of the health care into rural um, areas now in Washington State is done online. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important that Adults and kids, all of us have connectivity wherever you live in Washington State. There's, there's a couple of dead spots that actually not only do they not have like Comcast 
they don't have good cell phone reception. And I know um, some of the tribes are working hard to see if we can get some cell phone, some cell towers into those dead spots. So I think this is, um, it's, it's a hard way to confront the fact that we need to do a lot more with technology, but it probably in the long run is going to help us a lot more and it's going to hurt us. That's the actually the one good thing about COVID-19 I can think of. I mean, it is going to really make us think about that. How do we get every citizen connected? Absolutely. And obviously, um, in any special session, um, we're going to be talking about increased government spending. Um, we're, and we're, we're still responding to the current crisis with necessary relief. And beyond that, we'll need to be able to fund recovery efforts as well. As one of our representatives in Olympia, what will you prioritize? And how can we pay for spend, increased spending when revenues are going down? So when revenues are going down, um, the only way you can pay for increased spending is to lay off people or raise taxes. Uh, I think we've talked a little bit about that, um, not in any formal way, informally within the people in the House. And I think all of us feel like we did back in um, 2017 when we put too much on property taxes, that property taxes would be the last thing we'd ever want to do right now. Uh, we need to do some kind of a more progressive tax. We over the I was going to ask about, uh, you know, some tax reform that could maybe take place. So, so we over the past two years, because we haven't been able to get a capital gains tax and to get a um, income tax, we'd have to change the Washington State Constitution. Um, we have done all sorts of taking flat taxes and turning them into progressive taxes. Uh, an example of that is the real estate excise tax, or the REIT is what it's called, R-E-E-T. And that's something you pay whenever you buy and sell homes. And the REIT tax has been this flat tax for forever. And so two years ago, we turned that into a progressive tax. So if you buy a home for 150000 you pay less REIT than you did before. If you buy a house for two hundred and fifty thousand, you pay the same amount. If you buy a house for fifteen million, you pay a whole lot more for <laughs> And so, by by taking about maybe twelve different flat taxes and making them progressive, we've actually managed to bring in a lot more revenue to the state of Washington in kind of a quiet way. I'm not sure how many people realize we've actually done that. Um, you might think about having Gail Tarleton on. She's the chair of the finance committee and she could give you um really uh kind of deep thinking on each of those bills we turned from a flat tax to progressive tax it's a it's a pretty great way to at least take the most regressive tax system in the united states and make it a little more progressive but really we need some kind of a tax on the most wealthy in washington right now they don't pay as much tax as many of them would want to. So when we talk about a capital gains tax in the House and people come down to testify, they actually, there's so many people that come and testify uh, for it. it. It's the Microsoft millionaires and billionaires who made a lot of money from Microsoft early on and are progressives and think that they should be paying a lot more of their wealth to Washington State because it's the state that gave them the opportunity to make all this money. And so it's not, it's, it's, I think a lot of people think that those bills are universally hated by the wealthy, 
They're actually not in Washington state because we have a whole lot of really progressive, wealthy people in Washington state. So if we could get to a capital gains tax, that would be one of the best things we could do. If that could happen while I'm still in this job, I would love being part of that. And in terms of um, spending, uh, the other side of the equation, the um, uh, in, uh, for recovery and relief efforts, what kind of things would you prioritize? So I think what the governor did um, early on by vetoing those bills, knowing that this was coming, was a great mitigation effort. He, he started us out well for this awful discussion we're about to enter into. I would always prioritize policies before I prioritized people because it's the people that make government run. But when you call up and you need help from um, employment security, the best thing that can happen is a real live person can answer the phone instead of a machine. So the people are really important. Um, one of the things we're looking at right now is what bills um, were passed in the past few years, and this is the year that they're going to actually start costing us money, because lots of times when you pass a bill, it starts a couple years later. So we're looking at the bills that are supposed to start this year and say, which of those bills could we pause? So we don't start them this year. We don't. We don't get rid of the bill. We keep the policy in place, but we don't have to pay it now this year. We can pause it for a couple more years. So are there bills like that that we can basically put on hold, maintain the policy, but put the money part of it on hold until we have more money to implement it because it's still important policy. So that's one of the things we're looking at. Ultimately, I don't see how we get through this without laying off people. And that's the most painful part of this. But like I said, I'm really happy we have the government contracting bill in place. So if state employees get laid off, they'll know that they're going to be hired back rather than outsourcing those jobs. So one of the parts of the uh, um, of the budget discussion has been federal aid from the federal government. And this is because the federal government can take on debt in the ways that the state can. The Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell talked about this late last week when he was rather pejoratively when you referred to it as a, a blue state bailout. What more do you think we need from the federal government to get us through this crisis? I think we need to elect more representatives of <laughs> the federal government. Well, that goes without saying. <laughs> uh, we, I, we could spend you know, an hour talking about that. We probably don't need to because most of the people listening, um, I'm guessing, in what area do you cover with this podcast? Uh, well, it's the Olympia standard, uh-huh. so we're very Olympia focused. But we do we do get listeners from other, um, you know, the surrounding area uh, that are interested in what's going on in Olympia. The surrounding area, meaning Tumwater and Lacey. Okay, so so you know, you're you're going to get seventy um, percent of the people there that think we should be more progressive, and thirty percent who would would have some alternative views on that. Um, <laughs> I think that the federal government. Mitch McConnell specifically, that that comment he made, um, and Andrew Cuomo did a nice job of responding to it, correct? Um, what he pointed out is Kentucky is, I think, third from the bottom in terms of the, num- the states that just take money, because Kentucky's like rural Washington. They just don't have family wage jobs there. They haven't they don't have unions there. They So they haven't negotiated good salaries for employees. So here you have this state that really pays nothing to the federal government and is just a drain on the federal government. And then you have New York and California and Washington that we are, in terms of our economies, we're always giving more than we take out to the federal government. So um, Mitch McConnell and his talking points are totally 
upside down with reality. Uh, and I hope that um, more and more Americans are tuned into that. So in terms of the federal government, they, they need to help us. They can keep printing money because the U.S. dollar is still the coin of the realm. We're really lucky there. If we weren't, if we weren't like the standard in terms of the world economy, we couldn't be printing money the way we are right now. But I think that we just need to print enough money to get us through this so that business can hopefully start up because without healthy businesses, you don't have revenue to pay for all the things that are important to us. Well, thank you so much, Lori. That, those are all the questions that we have for you. Um, are there any final words of wisdom you'd like to offer to our listeners today? I, th- I think that right now we're all in this very, very uncertain time. We're a little like Linus when his blanket's in the wash. Um, oh, okay. All the things that we typically <laughs> hang on to that give us security are up in the air. I, I think we need to just be smart and thoughtful and each one of us keep doing the right thing in terms of keeping both ourselves and our families safe. Because when we do that, we're keeping other families safe as well. And we're going to go through some really tough times, especially in terms of finances and budgets. The more we can know that we'll work, keep working it through together, I think that gives us a little more security that we're going to hang in there until we get this right. But it's not going to be easy. The more we can take care of each other, love each other, and keep a sense of humor, it's going to help all of us. So. In, in terms of um, my job, I, I think any constituents who are in um, a dilemma and they don't know what to do about it, they should feel free to call my office or Beth Dolio's office or Sam Hunt's office. That's, that's what we're doing right now is a lot of constituent services. So if you're out there and you're feeling like you need our help, please call. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us, Lori. We really appreciate your time, knowing that you are an incredibly busy person, and uh, we appreciate the passion that you bring to your work. This was this was all sorts of fun, and these were great questions, by the way. Oh, thanks. Oh, thank, oh, you. thank you. Thanks. This has been the Olympia Standard. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you have any questions, thoughts, ideas, uh, things you want us to talk about, you can reach us at theolympiastandard at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at the Oli standard if you want to bug us there and we hang out on the olympia subreddit where these episodes are posted and shared the olympia standard is produced by uh olympia pop rocks you can support olympia pop rocks by going to their store if you go into their store you can actually buy a lined journal with the olympia pop rocks logo on it and it list looks awesome and a special shout out to jemmy joe for helping us with this very different technical world that we're in um and also i want to give a shout out to zencaster which is the app that we've been using to do this distance recording it's been incredibly helpful yeah and yeah i second that <laughs> Thanks. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Bye.